Happy Halloween and welcome to a brand new series of Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. I'm John Worsey, a writer at the University of Portsmouth, and you join me in one of the city's most haunted locations, the New Theatre Royal. Apparently, we should be looking out for a mysterious, ghostly pat on the back from the spectre that is theatre manager Henry Rutley, who's supposedly been walking the halls since the mid-1800s. And very much here on the mortal plane is Rebecca Jenica, Senior Lecturer in Film and Media Studies at the University of Portsmouth. It's always interesting to come into a sort of atmospheric space like this, and I think theatres always, there's always stories whenever you go to a theatre. There's always that interesting history, so it's a good place to be for this. As you'd expect from Life Solved, we're here to explore the tangible. So over the next 20 minutes or so, we'll be exploring the history of the horror genre, the development of scary movies, TV shows and computer games, and how a good, spooky story can be used to explore the way we live. I've always felt a keen interest in those sorts of stories, whether they have the grain of truth or whether they're more fictional. And I'm very interested in ways in which horror kind of gets a response from people. Many people have quite an, an instinctive draw to it, or equally, they may feel quite unsettled by it. And that's an interesting thing to talk about. They're some of the most kind of entertaining and also thought-provoking stories. I like the way horror kind of works on a bit of a visceral level. The horror genre has obviously changed over the years. While tales of ghosts and ghouls have likely been with us since the dawn of time, beliefs and the concerns of the age play a part. Rebecca's PhD explored gothic fiction, the influence of which can still be seen in today's books, TV series and films. Gothic really starts here in Europe. I was focusing particularly on the American variant, but what I was doing was thinking about ways in which gothic ideas, often they're bound up with spooky spaces, crumbling monasteries, mountainous terrain, the haunted castle, all those sorts of things. How does that work in the new world, which doesn't really have those sorts of things? And often you'll get spooky places like forests, the wilderness, that sort of thing. So that's where I kind of went initially with my research. And then I started to get into the stories that brought that to life. Gothic back kind of in the heydays, sort of the mid to the late 1700s, gives way in the Victorian era to the Victorian ghost story. And thinking about ghosts here and that's a real kind of turn to the domestic so lots of focus on spooky goings on in more familiar spaces so it's not out in some fantastic location it's perhaps down the street or a house like your own and then the mass media has a real impact on gothic so once cinema comes along some of those novels find their way onto the big screen and then there's a new emphasis on things like how do things look sound comes along sound has an impact what becomes scary isn't just the story and the subject matter but it's the other experiences as well and then we kind of get to say the mid part of the 20th century and people focus on different fears so for instance the atomic age and horror that's related to what happens in the nuclear age one of the horror characters that has made its way from the Gothic age all the way to the current day is the dreaded Nosferatu. 
many people will think of vampires and they'll think of Dracula and various iterations of, of Dracula that have kind of appeared throughout different kinds of pop culture and that's a very visual image and there are other things we associate with Dracula, the costume, the, the, the mannerisms, those sorts of things. But a lot of horror has its roots in ancient myth, human experiences that are very old, real world issues to do with disease, to do with anxiety about wasting, that kind of thing. And lots of cultures have stories about vampire type creatures. They're often associated with contagion, with beings that are said to prey on the living. So that story of Dracula really kind of taps into lots of older ideas that many people would recognise in different sorts of cultures. Dracula is a figure that speaks very strongly to its time in terms of issues in Victorian England, these anxieties about a threat coming from without society, but quite an ambivalent figure, very attractive but also repellent of course and a threat that kind of comes into the heart of British empire and British home and culture. But anyone who has spent even the smallest amount of time in the company of Dracula will know the character has evolved over the decades. Well, as much as an undead vampire can evolve anyway. We have seen that figure take many different forms over the years and I think a lot of people have had great fun and found much on offer in that figure. So we've seen a few different versions of the vampire through the years. So people will think of things like Hammer Horror, their take, very cinematic take on that figure. And moving throughout the 20th century, we've had various kinds of versions of vampires. So for instance, the Anne Rice vampire, those novels that really kind of nudge at the boundaries, vampires who want to be vampires and love it, vampires who don't want to be vampires and hate it, often kind of reflecting back to us, what does it mean to be human, ideas about embracing your identity, struggling with it, really come through. Something like True Blood explores in quite a graphic way sometimes certain aspects that we might recognise as very traditional Gothic, so Southern Gothic, the Southern part of the United States, really kind of taps into that sort of atmosphere, that being part of the Gothic experience and in terms of regionalism. But those figures will say something about what it means to live in society, how people relate to other people. Vampires are often a figure of excess, but I mean, that poses an interesting sort of a scenario in which vampires are known and they might be able to, should they so choose, partake in society in a way that hasn't been seen perhaps in other sorts of stories. Now, if you were picking up on some strange noises in the background there, don't be alarmed. You weren't hearing ghosts. That was just the sound of the stage in the new Theatre Royal being pumped through into the dressing room via their speakers. In terms of horror reflecting our lives back at us, it's interesting that much of our modern-day horror has a conservative element, a threat or an outsider that needs to be overcome. Although that isn't a rule cast in iron, even when it involves iron bolts through the neck. You go back to some of those early versions of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster. 
is in many ways portrayed quite sympathetically it's just that we are more used now to looking at some of the ideas and considering what's it like to be the monster not just to experience the monster i think there's a real appetite now for content kind of telling all these different stories but i think lots of those stories are about examining what it means to be different and the idea of horror as conservative is something that you know works up to a point because we like stories to have resolutions but there are many different ways of telling some of those stories and they don't necessarily all tie up at the end and i think people are really kind of hungry for exploring different perspectives and the Anne rice vampires for instance are great at doing that but some of them might still be construed as monstrous <laughs> Throughout the film age, there have been concerns over the impact that storylines might have on people in the real world, where abuse and violence becomes less of a plot device and more of an instruction manual. One of the things that I do teach on is film history, and that's a very old debate and anxiety, especially vulnerable groups in society. Younger people watching things, are they going to be influenced? Will they copy things? But yeah. There are realistically many things that make up the human experience, and media is one part of that. As a media kind of researcher, there has been quite a bit of a history of people thinking about those sorts of issues and trying to determine whether or not these are effects, if you like, that could have an impact on audiences. I think the reality is probably pretty complicated because there are so many films that people watch and of course most people are not going to act upon them or particularly be affected in a very obvious way. It's, it's a complicated part of the human experience, I think. If you're a fan of the horror genre of films in general, you can check out Express FM's film podcast, We're Gonna Need a Bigger Pod, which is a weekly show covering in-depth discussions about the latest movie news, trailers, film reviews, guest interviews with actors, producers, directors, composers, and a lot more. Hosts John Brown and Paul Marsh navigate the world of film with insightful perspectives and often comedic take on everything happening in the film business right now. Plus, if you're a lover of soundtracks and film music, hosts John Brown and Sean Wilson also present the podcast Scoreheads, which is a weekly show involving discussions with composers of music to the biggest films, TV shows and video games, speaking with the composing space's biggest artists. Upcoming interviews in the horror genre include chats with Ryan Shaw, the composer of Zombie Town, David Wingo and Aman Abbasi, the composers of Exorcist, Believer, and Charlie Clauser, the composer of the Saw films. All episodes can be found at expressfm.com forward slash podcasts. Click the We're Gonna Need a Bigger Pod button on the website to download now. We've already learnt that the horror genre goes back centuries, if not forever. So is it something primeval? Something hardwired into all of us? Rebecca's of the opinion that while it is something deep-rooted in our consciousness, some of us have a tendency to avoid that fact. A lot of people feel that horror is potentially quite silly. It's something that 
there's not much of a place for in contemporary culture whereas other people feel very strongly that that is scary and I don't like that and I don't really want to experience that and I suppose there's another group of people who are a little bit more like yeah I can sort of see it and maybe you know it's the suspension of disbelief but there's kind of a value or a use for being scared I think many of those ideas that we look to in horror are pretty old and some of them might feel a little outmoded but I think there are always moments when we might feel shall I say a thrill of fear even if you consider yourself to be very rational and not a believer and so forth I do think things like the possibility of a ghostly presence in an unfamiliar place under the right circumstances is really interesting. So is horror a social good almost a collection of tales to keep us safe? I think there's lots of examples of that, aren't there? Whether it's something that we're sort of talking to children about, you need to be careful, these are the things that you have to watch out for. There are many, of course, all too realistic fears that some people confront daily, other people might just read about in the news, and people's lived realities can be dire and pressing. This is throughout the decades and throughout recent days, to see that there are many potentially life-threatening situations and horror can be a way of kind of experiencing that whether you're kind of going through something or whether you're not it is such a part of the human experience I think it is a way of kind of accessing those emotions. If you watch American Horror Story then you're going to love the next bit and if you've already heard our zombie apocalypse episode of Life Solved you might even recognize some of what Rebecca's talking about. American Horror Story is a great example for me because I've been teaching horror, particularly on TV, since that is indeed a a TV show, for a good sort of 10 years plus. Going back a few years, there were fewer examples, but over the last sort of 10, 15 years, there's been such a proliferation. There clearly is a big appetite for horror at the moment, and a lot of that is very focused in its own particular way more atmospheric more gory on issues that people kind of recognize and relate to american horror story started in 2011 it's been going for a decade plus it appears round about now every every year spooky season quickly became associated with strong female characters often older characters different sorts of experiences among the cast and really trying to explore, often for me very focused on a space, which I found interesting. So the first one came known as Murder House. Then we've had Hotel, Roanoke. Some of these are very location-oriented. And yeah, absolutely, getting into those issues. And I think a lot of people watching have looked to the show as a way of engaging with things they hadn't necessarily seen portrayed in that way before. And just in case you're afraid of spoilers, don't worry. We're going to touch on the themes of American Horror Story from recent years, but there are no plot reveals coming up. Quite often you'll get a timeline which is contemporary and then a timeline which kind of harks back to an earlier era. Partly that's because they use devices of a supernatural nature at times which lets you explore what's happened in the past. And so you will often get an interleaving of different eras and sometimes you'll get a specific focus on a specific era. So they were looking at 1980s context, looking at ways of exploring the AIDS crisis and threats to the gay community and issues pertaining to that, that sense of anxiety and 
fear about unknown issues as well as all too sadly known issues about prejudice so there's an example of a series that addresses in a fairly overt kind of a way some issues but there are other seasons like coven very much focused on issues to do with gender to do with race that setting of new orleans is such an interesting one fantastic setting and storylines there involving young women who haven't found a place until they've come to the coven until they've come to kind of that part of the world that enables them to embrace something different about who they are and really asylum is another interesting one for me that second season that focuses on storylines about historical issues that people will kind of look back to and hope that we've learnt from and moved from so prejudice pertaining to gay male and female characters and the appalling treatment suffered historically but not really in in the very distant past and ways in which people might then reflect upon how society treats people who are considered to be different or challenging in some way So, the horror genre isn't just stuck in a gothic past. It doesn't solely speak to our primal fears. It can actually be used to explore contemporary society. Horror does appear to be a broad church. A spooky broad church, with a haunted graveyard, probably. It is quite feasible that some people just will not enjoy that level of of horror horror shall we say because you know for me horror is quite an open term to some people horror means blood and gore and that those sorts of special effects that lead to a very visceral kind of experience to others it can be quite spooky and atmospheric and traditionally that's where horror on tv has gone it's about the power of suggestion rather than anything too graphic for all kinds of reasons mostly because of the tv being in the home you make a choice to go to the cinema, you can control that in a way that you can't. What if a small child stumbles across something unsuitable? I think now we are looking at a time and American Horror Story has been part of that. We're seeing, not across the board, but we are seeing more examples of more extreme horror on TV. Things are changing a little. The horror stories of the last couple of centuries have been in books and later on in cinema and on screen. But the 21st century offers even more opportunities for the genre. There are computer game adaptations of the likes of The Last of Us, graphic novels and all kinds of other developments. For me, gothic and then horror kind of coming from that has always been quite multimodal, we might say. There's always been going back to gothic novels and gothic plays. There's been art, there's been the stage adaptation, there's been the quest to provide special effects, some of which we may be feeling the kind of atmosphere of in this very building. There's always been that kind of drive to offer different sorts of experiences. And there's always been quite a few different adaptations of lots of those classic horror tales. And it's interesting to me how something works in a movie compared to how it works on TV. Sometimes that's meant quite traditional things like you need to censor more for TV. Stephen King talks about this, how 
the cinematic experience is probably going to favour some of his works better than the small screen because the sensors worry more on the telly. But TV has plenty of strengths with it being episodic. Now we're seeing so many stories that are played out over quite a few hours. Sometimes that's a great thing. Sometimes it's not so effective. In many ways, I think the short form is pretty good for horror because suspense builds and then you have that big payoff within a movie. But there are lots of examples of horror coming from different areas, like comics, for instance, or from video games, or equally starting out in a format like film and TV, and then here's the game. Here's how you can experience the nail-biting terror of being stalked by zombies, for instance. On your way home from work, I know there's, there's an app, yeah. <laughs> Whether a gaming app or a traditional film, Horror has nearly always been considered as something for the grown-ups. But that's changing with the likes of Wednesday on Netflix, which is seen as a family watch. That said, Rebecca says that horror stories for children have been hiding in plain sight for a long time. Of course, most people will reflect that a lot of fare that is considered to be for children, we think about things like fairy tales, and of course, you know, monsters and scary scenarios are a big part of that. Often the feeling is perhaps they're fantastic, so that's less concerning or it's just on the page, so maybe it's less confronting. But often those stories will be about a learning experience or dealing with real life emotions in a sort of fun way that you can engage with and then put to one side, share with mum and dad kind of thing. There are some really interesting media examples. Adam's Family, absolutely. Wednesday's clearly been such a kind of hit. That's amazing. And we've had different versions of the Adam's Family. Big screen, animated TV. And The Munsters is another one that I think occasionally appears on TV. Doesn't seem to get quite as much love as the Adam's Family, but it's also an engaging and very safe kind of take on those sorts of things. This is the perfect time of year to draw the curtains, put the fire on, and enjoy an evening of horror on the TV. What are Rebecca's recommendations? One that I found very effective as a first-time viewing, but kind of engaging again, was The Descent, which is a few years old now, and it's about a group of female friends that go kind of caving, exploring within the bowels of the mountain, and that is such an atmospheric piece if you're someone like me who's maybe a little bit claustrophobic if you're not comfortable with the dark and you're wondering what's going to be lurking there well I won't give anything away but you know it's not fun <laughs> I do enjoy Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell which is a rather different sort of a text I remember again seeing that in a cinema and lots of kind of screaming and shrieking which is kind of fun because horror can be a very communal people will respond but that's got an engaging story and it's got some interesting characters and it's pretty schlocky. Not that to say that it is a horror comedy, but there are those kinds of aspects of that viewing experience that are not a million miles apart. And another one for me is Colour Out of Space. That's something that I kind of turn to with my studies because it's a reimagining of a it's, it is an adaptation really of a Lovecraft story it's a different sort of experience it's kind of designed to get you thinking about what's out there it has a cosmic horror feel and the 
really tried to engage with that cinematically. I have enjoyed the new Adams Family animated film and there's been a sequel to the film and they're, you know, they're always fun. I think Monster House is good. Tim Burton is always engaging and Nightmare Before Christmas. That's a nice kind of a way into some of those ideas. And yeah, lots to enjoy there, I think. And Gremlins, potentially. Yeah, that came into my head. Family friendly? Depends on the family. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with simply enjoying a horror film, TV series or book just as a scary story, especially around Halloween. But it's been fascinating to explore how many of these stories go much deeper, challenging our current day view of the world, addressing the issues of the day, or even keeping us safe with a cautionary tale. In the same way that horror sheds some light on our primeval fears, it appears to be doing the same for the societal concerns of the day. And as we've hopefully shown, it has done for centuries. I have an oft-quoted quote from H.P. Lovecraft, you know, an early 20th century writer of horror, and I'm probably slightly paraphrasing, but he's saying the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the strongest is the fear of the unknown, and that's something that most people can probably relate to. It's always possible that there's something out there that we don't know about. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life Solved. We would love you to be part of the discussion. Email us at lifesolved at port.ac.uk. That's lifesolved, one word, at port.ac.uk. Tell us what you think and make suggestions for future episodes of Life Solved. And we'd love it if you clicked follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. We'd really appreciate it if you left a rating or review as well. It helps us get these conversations into more ears around the globe. If you've been inspired by this episode and want to support our research, like Rebecca's in the School of Film, Media and Communication, then head to port.ac.uk slash lifesolved to find out how. Next time, we explore the real facts of radiation. So don't expect any more horror stories of radioactive zombies. We associate human-made radioactivity with all these terrible things. We're not quite as worried about natural radiation, even though the levels in the environment of natural radiation tend to be almost everywhere much, much higher than artificial. Bye for now. <laughs>